couple of old friends, friends uh, and faces that we see and we love dearly and we've missed dearly. Um, and then a whole bunch of new ones, which we trust we will get to know, maybe a little bit today, but over the years, if today goes well, I might be back, I don't know. <laughs> but I'm going to be preaching out of Jeremiah today, Jeremiah chapter 7. So if you have a Bible, you can take your time finding that particular passage, that chapter. And uh, Jeremiah is a, is a dark book, really, and I'm going to probably hone in on the, one of the darkest chapters um, and this is Hope Church, so, you know, when you go down into the dark chapters, when there's just a little bit of light, it makes a massive difference. So we will end in some hope, but I'm just warning you, it's going to get dark and depressing for some of this. I'm going to go for about 30, 35 minutes, so church will be a little late, okay? So apologize to your, to your lunch appointment or whatever you have afterwards. Um, but the verses will be up on the screen as well. And the title of today's message is Temple Tantrum. It's not a temper tantrum, a temple tantrum. Because Jeremiah is finding himself at the door of the temple, which is, you know, Bible code in Israel for their church meetings, their church gatherings. And he's confronting the church attenders. And I'm preaching out of Jeremiah for two reasons. Number one, it's the last message I preached in South Africa. So this message is still in me. And I believe in the sovereignty of God. In other words, if he wanted me to speak in Canada on Jeremiah and then he asked me to go run the comrades. No, he didn't ask me. I asked him to help me. But if he asked me to go to South Africa and then I got asked to come to Zimbabwe, I trust that, you know, if Jeremiah is in me, that there's something out of Jeremiah 7 that is good for this church as well. So that's the first reason. The second reason is um, this is a brand new church plant, as far as I know. It's your second week, as I heard some have said out the front here. And, um, and you know, Jeremiah is standing in an established temple. It's been there for a number of years. And uh, he is looking around at the people who are attending. And so in many ways, you can look at what Jeremiah is saying and cast your mind ahead five years from now as a church, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, established in a sense as the temple has been established. And if Jeremiah had to come and visit your church, what would he say? Would he have a temple tantrum too? Maybe he'll have a tantrum in week two. I'm not too sure, but, you know, we'll leave that up to the Lord. We'll leave that up to, to you as a church. And that's why I think it's pretty relevant. I mean, no pressure on me. I know it's week two. You know that I'm a musician as well. So, you know, have you ever heard of the, the term one hit wonder? It's when a band writes a really great song. Everybody wants to listen to it. But they become one hit wonders when they fail to write hit number two, hit number three. And so obviously last week was a hit. Most of you came back. Well done. Whatever you said last week, whatever you did is good. So pressure is on me to, uh, you know, to maybe, uh, hopefully next week, all of you will come back as well. But I've already warned you, it's going to get a little dark first. But I trust we'll end in some hope. So let's, uh, let's have a look at Jeremiah chapter 7. I'll read a bit and I'll stop and talk. I'll read, I'll stop and talk. So there's no points here. You have to pay attention if you really want to take something home. Verses 1, we'll read and then we'll take a break when it's, it's necessary. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word. And say, hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Let's just stop here for a moment. 
I'll give you a bit of context. Right, this is spoken, it's right in between the, the fall of the Assyrian Empire. And actually the Assyrian Empire captured the northern kingdom of Israel. So Israel was at that stage broken up into two. Israel at the top uh, and down at the bottom, the south, is Judah. And a couple of years before this, uh, Assyria took the northern kingdom of Israel into captivity. You know, ruined everything. And now the Babylonian Empire is on the rise and they are casting a shadow, okay, growing in military power and they're casting a shadow, a shadow over Judah. And actually they, are, they think they're fine because they have the temple. This is the deceptive words that Jeremiah is putting his finger on. He's saying, you are using the temple of the Lord, you know, the modern day church in many ways, as a lucky charm. You think because you're going to the temple or because you have the temple, regardless of how you live your life, because at that stage, unfortunately, Judah is looking just like the surrounding idolatry, idol-worshipping nations around them. But they're adding to their idolatry, you know, their temple, their good Jewish, you know, let's fast forward to our days, their Christian habits. And they're using God in many ways. There's all these external things happening but, but, but internally, their hearts are, st their hearts are still dark and, and far from the Lord. And it's, so it's like maybe, I don't know what, what it looks like in our day, but sometimes you know, people can go, oh, at least I go to church. You know, I think I've got a chance in, in the kingdom of God. I think because I'm good at going to church, you know, God should save me. Or maybe you wear a cross around your neck. I don't know how far your superstition goes. It's amazing. Human beings, I don't know what it is, but we long. Obviously, there's a desire in us for a higher power to look after us. You know, we, 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 we believe silly things as a result of that because we're actually hungry for the one true God to take charge of our lives. My wife has got this funny superstition thing where she's like, just don't talk about the robots. You guys call them robots here like we do in South Africa? Yeah, that's the only way, man. In Canada, it's traffic lights. It's just too clean. So, you know, don't, don't talk about the color of the robot because as soon as you say something, it's going to go red. I mean, it's not true, but I mean, somehow my wife has got this idea that, you know, the robot gods out there will be appeased if she keeps silence about its color and therefore we'll have green lights all the way. This, you know, and, but Israel is guilty of the same thing. Oh, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. They're going, look at the northern kingdom. They didn't have the temple. They don't have Jerusalem. Assyria wiped them out. Babylon is here. We're still standing because the temple is our lucky charm. It's our dice. That's what we have. The temple of the Lord. And Jeremiah is saying, no, no, no. That's outward stuff. He's saying, amend your ways and your deeds. Because although you're going to the temple faithfully and doing all the things that you think you should be doing, you're also at the same time acting like the nations around you. So let's keep reading. Verses 5, if it's up on the screen. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds. So Jeremiah is saying there's a fakeness about you, but if you truly amend your ways and your deeds and you truly execute justice one with another and you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless or the widow, this comes through in the scriptures all the time. It's Bible code for injustice, okay? And he carries on. If you, shed, if you don't shed innocent blood in this place, if you, not go, if you do not go after gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place and in the land that I gave of all to your fathers forever. Verse 8. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely? This is all Ten Commandments here, okay? He's saying you're breaking them. And will you, swear, will you make offerings to Baal, an idol, and go after other gods that you, that you have not known? And then come and stand before me in this house 
we just called by my name and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations. And so here God is saying, I'm not interested in your outward religion. I don't, it doesn't matter. You are using me. That's what you're doing. You are abusing my kindness and my goodness. Not interested in your outward religion. Breaking the commandments. And they watched and participated in injustice. They, didn't, they turned a blind eye to it. The widow, the fatherless, the sojourner. Innocent blood being shed. And so often it can be the case for us. Hey, we attend our connect groups. We come to church. Might even crack open the Bible a little bit. But we turn our eyes to the injustice. Sometimes we participate as a result in the injustice that is around us. We break God's heart by breaking his law of loving him with all our hearts and loving our neighbors as ourselves. That's what Jesus says. You want to summarize the whole thing? There you have it. But we say the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. We say we are delivered. We have a hope church. And Puts his finger on the Jeremiah. Verse 11, let's keep reading. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because, the evil, because of the evil of my people Israel. And now, because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and when I spoke to you persistently and you did not listen, and when I called you and you did not answer, therefore I will do to this house that is called by my name and in which you trust and to the place that I gave to you and to your fathers, as I did to Shiloh. Now, let me give you a little bit of the backstory here. First of all, we see he uses this term that you are using my temple as a den of robbers. Okay? I don't know if you guys get Stranger Things here. Do you, you, you know that series? You get Netflix too? I mean, I'm sure you have a VPN and you make a way, right? The, the Lord will make a way where there seems to be no way. It's called a VPN. Okay? And, and, uh, and I'm, I'm sorry if I'm going to spoil it for you, but you've had enough time to watch the latest Stranger Things uh, by now. At least I think so. But I'm not going to ruin it for you. But there is a baddie in there. His name's Yuri. He's Russian. And I don't know why Russians are always the bad guys, but, you know, that's how Hollywood works. And Yuri is a smuggler. He's a bad guy. And he hides his loot in a church. <laughs> that's, you know, this is what Jeremiah is saying you're doing. A den of robbers. You, it's a metaphor. He's saying it's a picture of bad people hiding in a good place. And we think of ourselves, how could, may we be robbers of God? They are ro robbers of God. God is accusing them. You are like the people who rob the bank and then take the money and hide it in the church and think you're untouchable. And we rob God of his glory when we live, in many ways, relying on outward religion. Because then when we get to the Father, we go, yeah, I've been going to church. I've been giving money. I cracked my Bible open a few times. And what you're basically saying to God is, I saved myself. Like, look at how I lived. My track record. It's going to balance the scales. It's going to flow. It's going to be in my favor. And God gets no credit. You get the credit. You rob him of his glory. And you might find yourself treating a church as a den for you, a robber, robbing God of his glory. And he's saying to them, let me remind you of Shiloh. This is what the Lord is saying through Jeremiah to the people. Shiloh was a place um, where once 
Israel did worship. They didn't have a temple. They had a tent. You know, first, it wasn't first prize, but it did the job. And in the, temp was, in the tent was the ark, which represented the presence of God. And their enemies, the Philistines, actually came. They didn't have a king at that stage and took the ark away and destroyed that place. And God said he allowed that to happen because they were behaving as Judah is behaving right now. And he's saying to them, I'm willing to do that again. God is so committed to getting your attention that he would remove his presence from your life so you would be dry, that you would be taken into exile into the dark, dark places so you could realize you need him, that you've robbed him of his glory. He's saying to them, I did it in Shiloh. I'll do it again. Later on, David, their first proper king, went and found the ark and brought it back from Philistine, but he brought it to Jerusalem. And ultimately, he substituted the tent, the tabernacle, for a temple, which is where they're in right now. And he's saying to them, you've forgotten the backstory of this temple. You've forgotten your backstory. This is how far I will go. And it's amazing. Jeremiah is standing in the very place they think they're safe. And Jeremiah is saying, you're not. God is calling you to repentance. And we'll see how kind God has been over the, over the ages, calling them, extending mercy, saying, turn, turn, change, truly change. Because Judgment's coming, if not. So let's keep reading. I'm going to jump to verse 21 now. It should be on the screen. There we go. Let's read. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, add your burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat the flesh. For in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I did not speak to your fathers or command them concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices, but this command I gave them. Obey my voice. I will be your God you shall be my people and walk in a way that I command you that it may be well with you. But they did not obey or incline their ear, but walked in their own counsels and the stubbornness of their evil hearts and went backward, not forward. From the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets to them, day after day. Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. And in, in earlier he said, harden their hearts. They did worse than their fathers. So it's a picture of dark decline over here. And um, first of all, we see God wants them to flourish. He says I, I, that it may be well with you in verse 23. And so these guardrails God has given them, the law, I mean, even you think of the Garden of Eden. Like by God's grace, he put them in a garden they didn't plant, they didn't water, an earth they didn't create. This is God's kindness to them. And then he just says, hey, listen, Love and live for me, and you live out your faith in me by not touching that tree, okay? If you know the beginning. And, you know, it was a picture of, even here he's saying, when I brought them out of Egypt, okay, he rescued them, not because of how good the Israelites were, because a blood of a lamb, a lamb died in their place, and God heard their cry and rescued them, not because they followed the law, they hadn't, didn't even have the law. So he gave them the law, the guardrails, after he saved them by grace so that it may go well with them, so that they may flourish. God wants human beings. He wants you to flourish, to do well. That is why. He's not trying to ruin your fun. <laughs> he wants you to flourish. And yet their hearts were hard. And that's why he says to them in the beginning, it was a weird thing. And he said, listen, add your burnt offerings and your sacrifices and eat the stuff. Actually, some of the laws he gave them is like, I want everything to be burnt up, nothing to be left over. Now he's saying to them, you know what? Your external stuff means nothing. You're not offering these sacrifices. 
out of faith in me. So you may as well eat it because it means nothing. That's what he's saying to them. The law says don't eat them. He's saying go ahead, eat them because that sacrifice means nothing. Your heart's not in it. You're just using me. It's just external outward religion. And he said to them, I've sent my servants persistently to you. We're reading chapter 7 here. If you fast forward to chapter 26, it tells us there that for 23 years, I think it's Jeremiah who prophesied for 23 years, and they didn't change their hearts. You know? So sometimes they go, oh, yeah, this is, the, maybe you're a guest here today, Christian. Ah, here we go. This is just legalism, fire and brimstone judgment. No, if I read this, this is God's kindness over and over again, saying you're heading for a cliff, you're heading for a cliff. Put your indicator on, turn around, you're heading for a cliff. Hello there, you're gonna drive off the edge, you're heading for a cliff. And human beings going, Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had fought. God's like, okay, you're gonna get what you want. And, and what's the problem here? What is the problem with people? What's the problem with Israel? Well, God kind of highlighted in verse 24. He says, the stubbornness of your hearts. Stubbornness of your hearts. Blaise Pascal said this, the heart has its reasons, which reason does not know. The question is, how will God get all of you? Because he wants all of you, okay? He made you. He's got copyright. Just so you know, he wants everything, all of your life. How does he get all of you? Man, it's actually so simple. It's just little ticker on the inside of your chest. No, it's not the actual heart, physical muscle pumping. It's, the, you know, it's what psychologists and everybody knows. It's the seat of your will, your emotions, your heart. When he gets your heart, he gets your whole. He gets everything. And that was the problem there, and it's still the problem today, is that hearts are not changed. And God is wanting your heart Jesus' teachings was all about the core problems of sin, it's, uh, the heart. He's like, it's not what goes in external religion that makes you unclean. It's what comes out of the overflow of your heart. And this is what the hope of the gospel offers is a new heart. And there's just his, you know, years and years of history. We're reading parts of it now of where a hard heart results in devastation, destruction, judgment. If your heart is soft, Amazing things. God can do amazing things. If your heart is soft, you can show empathy. Empathy. You can show compassion. You can change your ways. You can think differently. Think differently if your heart has changed. That's what Blaise Pascal is saying. The heart has its reasons, which reason does not know. You might be the cleverest person, but there's something about your heart. You might do stupid things. If you're in love, you know what I'm talking about. Everybody around you might be going, what are you doing? Walk away. He's not good for you. She's not good for you. But when you are in love... Love is blind, they say. That heart, this is what God wants. I mean, Moses knew this problem too. You know, Moses, he saw Israel firsthand just, you know, complain uh, against the Lord, grumble. Man, he, he saw the darkness of Israel's heart, but he had hope too. He actually, in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 30, I'm not going to read it, but he said, look, I know your heart. One day you're going to turn to idols. I've seen it happen before. It's going to happen again. But actually God one day is going to circumcise your hearts. Right now they had external religion. The young males were circumcised to show they belong to Israel. They belong to the Lord. And he's like, that's external stuff. It's good for a temporary solution. But ultimately your hearts are going to get circumcised. And then you will love the Lord. But before that, you actually didn't even know about Jeremiah. It's years and years and years before. But he could see it. Unless there's a heart change. 
You guys are heading for idolatry, and therefore you're going to heading for exile and for judgment. And so Moses knew their hearts would change. He had a glimpse of hearts being changed when they built the tabernacle. So what happened at Shiloh when the tabernacle got destroyed and the, and the um, ark got taken away? Moses kicked off the tabernacle tent building, which is just a metaphor for the presence of God. God wanted to be with his people. Set up my tent, my camp in the middle of your camp. I want to be with you. And when they built that camp, God stirred the hearts of Israel. It's incredible. They just gave and gave and gave that eventually Moses had to say, stop giving. So often in church, this is what it sounds like. Hey, everybody, we need toys. Please, if you have a bad toy, can you give a bad toy to a good church? You know, or please, you guys, you've got success in your business. Please, would you give? Man, we just need a little bit of dollar just to finish this project. That's generally how it goes. But when God arrests your heart, imagine we get up on stage and he goes, hey, guys, could you stop giving? Heavens above, we don't have enough safety deposit boxes to put your dollars in. Could you just hang on to it for a second? That's what happened to Israel. Their hearts were so moved, it was so stirred, the momentum happened because God got them in here. They just gave and gave and gave and they were told to stop giving. It's enough. When God gets your heart, he gets all of you. And some of you are sitting here today and you have built a big fence around your heart. And I want to warn you, he's coming after you. Okay, I'm not Jeremiah. But I'm standing here telling you God wants all of you and he's coming to do a bit of surgery. He's coming to get your heart. And that's actually where this message heads to, okay? But before it gets brighter, it's going to get a little darker. You ready? We're going to go just a little darker, okay? Chapter uh, 7, verse 16, as I'm rewinding a bit, this is God saying to Jeremiah, As for you, do not pray for this people, or lift up a cry, or pray for them, and do not intercede with me, for I will not hear you. That's how bad it's gotten that, you know, 26 years, okay, for, for generations, he sent prophets warning them, and now God is basically saying, okay, don't even pray to me. This is, this is dark. This is a trend in the Old Testament. When the nation of Israel went away, somebody interceded for them. Before they even were a nation, Abraham interceded for his, brother, you know, his family member Lot in Sodom. And he said, Lord, if there's 50 righteous people, would you save the place? God's like, yeah. He's like, if there's, you know, he just keeps going down. He should have just stopped at one. He didn't. You know, Lot was eventually rescued and the place was destroyed. But then you fast forward to Moses. And every time Israel did a bad thing, Moses went before the Lord saying, please remember your promise. Promise, don't wipe them out. He interceded for them. And this is so bad that God is saying, Jeremiah, don't intercede for them. Oh dear, who will cry out on, the, on, on Israel's behalf to the Lord? Because God's saying to, to, to Jeremiah, shut up, don't pray. God is going, Father Abraham, Abraham's sons. <laughs> Let's keep reading. Why is it so bad? Why is God turning his back? Verse 17. Do you not see what they are doing in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood, the fathers kindle fire, and the women knead dough. Sounds amazing, hey? Why? To make cakes for the queen of heaven. Idolatry. And they pour out drinks, offerings to other gods to provoke me to anger. Verse 19, is it I whom they provoke, declares the Lord? It is not themselves to their own shame. Therefore, thus says the Lord the God, uh, our God, behold, my anger and my wrath will be poured out on this place. Upon man and beast, upon the trees of the field, the fruit of the ground, it will burn and be quenched. So first step here is their family worship. They are supposed to be as families oriented towards Yahweh. 
And actually, they're leading their children astray. This has gotten so bad that the whole families are worshiping idols. It gets worse. Chapter 7, verse 30. Let's read that. For the sons of Judah have done evil in my sight, declares the Lord. The Lord. Man, I just can't get that word right. They have set their detestable things in the house that is called by my name to defile it. And they have built the high places of Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it come into my mind. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will be no more called Topheth or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter, for they will bury in Topheth, because there's no room elsewhere, and the dead bodies of this people will be food for the birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth, and none will frighten them away. Heavens, it got that bad. Child sacrifice. Moses, when he was about to lead the people into Israel, he warned them. He said, don't do what the other nations are doing. They are burning their children, now sacrificing their children. And God said, this has not even entered into my mind. Moses warned them generations before, and they are doing it over here. And of course, in our culture, there is the physical killing of kids. We've just, in North America, I live in Canada, the whole abortion uh, uh, law that was overturned and the arguments and the, and the, and the uh, you know, the, what, what happened uh, in our context around that. I mean, yes, there's the physical killing of children. Man, there's the wrecking of children as we've seen the gender and sexuality, that ideology uh, is confusing and leading our young children astray. You know, it's, it's, we, we read here about the Lord saying, I've given you guardrails so that you may flourish. And in the West, they talk about human flourishing. I live there. And they want the kingdom values, but they don't want the king, the king who governs us. And so it's a lie. It's in the name of humanity flourishing, freedom for you. But actually, it's, nobody is winning. We are seeing the destruction firsthand. Yeah, so there's that physical aspect of sacrificing children on the altars of culture. But I think there's a spiritual sense there's, that may happen too. Maybe parents, we might not be sacrificing our children physically, but handing them over to idolatry as we don't invest in them, as we don't teach our children as Moses commanded the people and, and put the gospel in front of them, proclaim Jesus to them, have conversations about them, putting the truth of Jesus next to the lies of the culture and let Jesus do his thing. We just hope and TikTok disciples them you know, not Facebook, because that's for the old people. You know, what's the other, you know? And the music they listen to. I tell you, for us, we know that the truth of Jesus outweighs the lies of the culture, but you have to work really hard to make sure my voice is at least as loud as the culture's voice. If I just turn it down a little bit, my children will be swallowed up, will be overwhelmed if I don't do my job as a parent. So I want to throw that out to some of the parents out here. Fight for your kids, protect them. And, and this is the context that a terrible irony is highlighted here by Jeremiah. He's saying the place where you sacrifice your children to pagan gods, there was the god of Molech there, Molech. He says, actually, where you do the sacrifices, you will be sacrificed. It's going to be so bad that actually you're going to be left unburied and the scavengers are going to come. It's a terrible picture of judgment. The table's turning. You sacrifice, actually, you will be sacrificed as a result. And you know, I'm not Greek and Hebrew scholar, 
But the valley of Hinnom here, that place where they do these things, in Aramaic, it was translated as Gehenom. And in Greek, it's translated as Gehenna. And that is the word Jesus used when he taught about hell. The place where people go to who reject God. He, he borrows from. He says, that place is not where you want to go. And he uses the incident here. What has been happening in this valley in the, in the story and the time of Jeremiah? It's his primary metaphor when Jesus talks about judgment. This is what Tim Mackey says. I'm just going to read the quote. Just listen. For Jesus, hell or Gehenna, this valley, is final judgment reserved for those who, like Judah, the southern kingdom, persistently reject God's call to repent. It's for those seeking false security and something other than faith in God's gracious provision so that they can actually pursue idols and continue in destructive ways of life. In many ways, he's saying that destination is God saying, after we calling you back graciously, persistently, extending mercy and you rejecting it, it's ultimately you getting what you want. There can only be human flourishing if the giver of human life is in charge. You take him out, the result is death. It's amazing. You, you can just, I don't see, I, you can't read just judgment into this. You have to hear God saying he's calling them to repentance. In other words, he's not saying I'm looking for perfection. I'm just looking for a soft heart that can say, oh, we were wrong, forgive us. And so, you know, the gospel is that story of not you cleaning up your life and living perfectly, but actually just admitting you can't do it. He did it for you. And surrendering and saying he saves. I don't save through my good record. He saves by actually taking my bad, bad record upon him dying in my place for my sins. And then he gets the credit for salvation. And when I believe in that thing he did for me, he gives me a new heart, a new life. I mean, I'm jumping the gun here, but that's, that's hope. That's what's coming, okay? Because let's face it, Jeremiah 7, at what I read right now, it's not the fridge magnet scriptures. There are some really popular verses in Jeremiah, and, and that's, that's not much nicer to preach. Let me just be honest with you. I would have loved to preach Jeremiah 29, you know? You know that story? I know you're in exile, but build houses, plant, marry people, see, multiply in this age, this place, because seek the welfare of the city, because in its welfare, you will find welfare. Pray on behalf of the city. That's the scripture we like to preach. But that's, that's 29. There's 28 chapters of darkness. And actually, the context, the reason why God is saying to them, settle down, is because he's saying that exile is going to be 70 years. I mean, you can't just kind of sit around and wait. It's too long, 70 years. You have to settle down, marry, plant, and seek the welfare. When it's read in context, actually that, that verse takes on a whole new meaning. In fact, in chapter 28, just before that, there was a false prophet who said, no, guys, two years, it's going to be fine. Babylon will be overthrown. We'll be back jamming in Jerusalem. And actually, Jeremiah was a true prophet. That's how you know you're a true prophet. He just said to him, no, he's lying. He'll be dead soon. And then he died. Okay. <laughs> That's kind of how the Old Testament guys rolled. So he's saying, let me tell you the real story. This guy said two years. This is what God's saying. 70 years, settle down. Get comfy, okay? Because in there, you will, your hearts will be turned back to God. That's like the pivot. Actually, those verses set the context for some hope that pops out of this dark book, 52 chapters, and then these three chapters in the middle, chapter 30 to 33, 
that almost sounds like, it almost looks like it's in the wrong book. That's how nice it is. And so we're going to look at some of that in a moment. And this is Hope Church. And so it's only right that we look at some of those verses. Verse 31 in chapter 31 starts like this. Let's see, it's up there, okay. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And so he's even bringing Israel, who was taken into captivity by the Assyrians long before, he's bringing them into that promise. And he's saying, verse 32, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. So this is good news because up until now, you know, that old covenant clearly has not worked. It has not changed their hearts. It's restrained them to some extent, but not ultimately. They kept falling back. They kept breaking covenant. They kept, Jeremiah uses the image of an unfaithful wife. That's why God says here, though I was their husband, they broke this covenant. They were unfaithful. The covenant didn't work. And he's saying, I'm going to make a new one. Oh, what's happening here? Verse 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. You ready for it? I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. That's incredible. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. This is what Moses pointed to when he's saying to him, you're going to be taken into exile, but actually God's going to circumcise your heart. A new covenant is going to be made. Not like the one I gave you, a new covenant. And this covenant is going to secure not only forgiveness of your sins, as we read in verse 34, I'll forgive your iniquity, but also freedom from your sins. In other words, the new heart will make you do the right things that would please the Lord and would cause you to flourish. You will have the resource to live in ways that none of them were able to up on that stage. That sounds like a sweet deal coming their way, hey? In one great act of God's mercy and forgiveness, He's going to transform their hearts into obedience and love. That is the solution required here. And so verse 14 in chapter 33 reads this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Up until here, the people could not be righteous. The people tried. The people failed. A righteousness as Romans declares from above needed to come because a righteousness from below couldn't do it. We couldn't do it. And it's this branch, this up from David. What is, what, is, what is happening here? Well, let's just fast forward a little bit into the New Testament. We're not going to read this. But in Matthew 21, you find Jesus in the temple having a tantrum. Huh? Overthrowing tables. And it's amazing because it's very similar 
to the days of Jeremiah. They are still busy with empty, ritualistic, outward religion. But there's no justice outside, completely neglected. Their national security is in the temple. They're saying, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Yeah, although the Romans are overshadowing them and they are like, the Bible used Rome, the Roman Empire and they're in the New Testament and the Babylonian. They use, you know, it's, it's a metaphor, similarities between the two. Same thing, security in the, at least we have the temple, although the Romans have got their thumb on us. Same problem. Same problem. And Jesus is in that temple. And you know what he does? He even quotes Jeremiah. He says to them, this place is supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations and you have turned it into what? A den of robbers. That's what Jeremiah called them. He says, does this place become a den of robbers? And if you were a good Jew and you were in the temple when Jesus was doing this, you should have been joining all the dots in that moment going, wait a minute, he sounds just like Jeremiah. In fact, Jesus even talked about the temple being destroyed in that temple. And that's when he said, yeah, destroy this temple and in three days it will be rebuilt. And they all missed the metaphor. He was saying, I am the temple. I will be crucified soon. Your sins will be upon me, but I will be rebuilt in three days. This temple is going to be destroyed ultimately and remain that way. But me, resurrected, you can actually now take shelter in me. It's amazing. The true temple, we can actually run to the true temple. This is what, this is the last verse I'm going to read. Jeremiah 33, verse 17 to 18 says this, For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel, and the Levitical priests shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings. Uh, to the Lord. Just stop it there. So that branch that Jeremiah spoke of is Jesus. And Jesus is the man on David's throne that would reign forever. He's the everlasting king. And Jesus, this is amazing. He's the high priest, the priest who would intercede like Jeremiah was supposed to as a prophet for the people. Jesus will forever intercede. So yeah, God said to Jeremiah, don't pray for them. But you know what? When Jesus prays for us, God listens. This is, this is the hope that we have. This is the hope that this church proclaims. Is that Jesus is that temple that you can now take shelter in. And you can actually run in as a robber. A robber of his glory. And run out righteous out of the temple of Jesus. And he is the one that will pray for you when you sin and you make mistakes. And he'll intercede for you. And the Father will listen to him even though he didn't want to listen to Jeremiah. He will listen to his one and only beloved son that he gave for you. And he was resurrected so that he could resurrect your dead heart. That thing, that ticker in your chest that makes you do all the wrong things and you just struggle, I wanna do the wrong things. Yes, he can take it out and give you a heart where you wanna do the right things, where you wanna honor him and live for him. And where you don't want to rob him of his glory anymore, where every good thing that is in your life, he gets the credit for it. You don't go, yeah, I'm pretty sweet. I think he should save me because I've, you know, I'm living a good life. That is not the Lord is our righteousness. That is you are your righteousness. You will come short. You will fall short. And you know, in Matthew 26, Jesus prayed that the cup would pass him by as he's in that garden, knowing he's going to face the cross. And in Jeremiah 25, God said that he's going to pour out not just judgment on Israel, but on the nations around Israel too. And he talked about this cup that's filling up with his wrath. 
And so when Jesus prayed for the cup to pass him by, he was actually going to drink the wrath that is supposed to not just fall on Israel, but fall on the nations. That includes you and me. I'm not a Jewish boy. I'm from the other nations. That actually judgment would not fall on us, but it fell on Jesus. It's amazing. And in Luke 22, when he stood there and he had the final Passover with his disciples, Jesus raised it up and he says, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. His blood shed was judgment upon him. The curses of breaking the old covenant came upon Jesus so that the blessings of the new covenant can come upon you and me. So we take shelter in the temple of Jesus. We run in as robbers. We run out righteous and renewed. That is the hope that Jeremiah could only smell, but you and I can taste. This is good news, friends. This is what this church is built upon. That actually now when people run into Jesus, they don't get death valley, which is hell for their rebellion, but the judgment fell upon Jesus and they get salvation. When we run into Jesus repenting with soft hearts, admitting, I need a savior, I'm a sinner, I can't fix myself, I need someone else, I need Jesus. And now that he is your king, he empowers you to be in his kingdom, not in this culture. And you can stand your ground. You don't have to be like Israel, who look just like the surrounding idol, idol worshippers uh, around them. You can be a light in the dark world around you because he is your king and you and his kingdom. And though you're in this culture, you don't live like the world does. You don't believe the lies of this culture. You flourish truly as a human because the creator of humanity is your Lord. So yeah, Jeremiah preached in the temple. You know, Jesus preached in the temple. Actually, later, when Jesus had ascended into heaven, one of his disciples had a vision in the book of Revelation. And Jesus was still speaking to temples, to churches, the, the, the letters in Revelation to the churches. And he was saying to them, don't be lukewarm. Don't be sexually immoral. Perse you know, persevere and pers uh, through trials and tribulations. And today still, he is speaking to churches. And maybe he's using Vic frothing at the mouth at the second week of Hope Church to speak to this church. And he's saying to each and every one of you, run to me. Run into me. Don't Trust in outward religion. This church may be a church that proclaims the inward change that comes, the miraculous, life-transforming gospel that is found in Jesus alone and rescue people from religion that leads them to hell with the good news of the gospel, with Jesus Christ at the center. And we will see, I trust, Robbers turned righteous as you run and you run and you run into Jesus. I want to pray for you, but before I do that, maybe could we just close our eyes just for a, a moment? And I just want to give an opportunity to someone who's here and you know for a fact you have been a robber and you have used God, you wanted blessings from him and maybe you've performed a little well and you think he owes you blessing because you come to church or you, you do th good things for him and you realize actually my heart is actually far from the Lord. I, I have a hard heart. I'm unable to sustainably live for his glory. In fact, I realize now if I want him to save me based on my behavior, I'm robbing him of his glory because he should get total credit for saving me. 
And actually, even if I didn't do one good thing, he is so good that he would still save me if I just trust in the temple, Jesus, the meeting, the, the place where we now meet with God. We get to the Father through Christ. He's the ultimate temple you need to take shelter in. And so if that's you, you want to become a Christian, like literally be like Christ, depending on Jesus for what he has done for you and not what you thought you could do for him. That's what it means to be a Christian. You want your heart transformed. He's, he's the only one that can give you that heart to live for him and to love him, to serve him. Won't you surrender to him now? If that's you, you just need to let me know by putting your hand up because I want to pray for you. I want to know if you're here. Anyone like that? Surrender to Jesus. Thank you. Anyone else? Anyone else? Stop robbing him of his glory. Give him the credit that he's due. Wonderful. Let me pray. Lord, you saw, saw those hands that went up. And they stand before you humble. That's all you require is a humble heart admitting we're lost, we need a savior, and you're that savior. And as they surrender now, Lord, as they put their lives, which really means they put their hearts in your hands and you transform them by your spirit right now. Lord, I ask you to fill them with your love. Lord, that you would assure them that you love them in spite of their history and that they are safe in you and you will take them as robbers of your glory and in this moment, in this instant, you transform them as righteous. The perfection of Jesus is credited to them. And they stand secure before a holy God. Judgment averted. It was on Jesus on that cross. They stand free and forgiven and also empowered to live for you, for your glory. Do it now in Jesus' name. Maybe just under your breath, you just say, Jesus, I'm here. I'm yours. I surrender. Forgive me. Forgive me of my sin.